Blackbird episode number 55. My name is James, and today I've got something a little bit special for you. I had an interview fall through last week, the very first time that's happened, maybe. Actually, no, I think one of Jose Galison's interviews on my show was sort of a pinch hit. But this time I wanted to do a solo episode because I've never done one before, and it's a muscle that I'm hoping to strengthen. So before we get into that, I have a very special announcement and then also, obviously, a sponsor to run by you. The special announcement is I am giving away a lifetime master membership to Tom Woods's Liberty Classroom. That's right. That's a $500 package. You get all of the courses in Liberty Classroom that exist today and forevermore. You want to do this. This is something that I've been advertising on my show and on the show notes and everything for a long time. And I mean, it was even like a permanent fixture in the links at the bottom of each episode description for a very long time. So join me, join Tom Woods. His monthly Q&A sessions are worth the price of admission alone. Um, He features many of the scholars who teach classes at Liberty Classroom in those Q&As. And then, you know, obviously the recorded sessions, the recorded classes are fantastic as well. So to enter, just go to blackbirdpodcast.com. The very top post is going to be not a podcast episode, but it's going to be something titled something like, you know, win a lifetime subscription to Liberty Classroom. You won't be able to miss it. Just go to blackbirdpodcast.com. Everyone who enters this drawing is going to get a 30-day premium membership to Blackbird. So that's your consolation prize or the additional prize that you'll get. I'm going to draw one person who wins that lifetime membership to Liberty Classroom. That person will also win a lifetime subscription to the premium feed of Blackbird. If you don't like it, you can unsubscribe, whatever you want to do. I'm going to also do two additional drawings for lifetime premium subscriptions to Blackbird. That'll be kind of the tie for second place. And then again, everybody else who enters the drawing will get a free 30-day premium membership. And of course, premium membership to Blackbird gets you early access to the podcast, including mess-ups, which the people who are on that list just heard me mess up for a couple of seconds while I looked up the details regarding this drawing. I'm guessing the people who are not on that premium list will not hear that because I have a great editor, Chris, who, (laughs) who will edit that stuff out for me. But if you want to get my mess ups, if you want to get early access to episodes, sometimes I record two or three weeks in advance with my guests. And then also you get the pre-show banter where the guests and I are just kind of having conversations before the interview formally starts. You get access to all of that. It's just sort of the raw interview file that I publish as soon as the interview completes, usually within, you know, an hour or two of that. So once again, head to blackbirdpodcast.com, click that link in the top post to enter and good luck. Next up, the sponsor of the show is Agris Tax Service. You have heard me talk about Matt Sersely. If you've been listening for a while, you've heard me talk to Matt Sersely. Matt is an agorist, an attorney, and a tax specialist down in Texas, and he wants to help you find ways to legally avoid paying some of your taxes. His goal is to cost the IRS and the federal government money and to help you save some of yours. Matt provides advice for federal taxes, and he can also provide state-specific advice for the state of Texas. Once again, Matt Sersley is the Agorist Tax Attorney. You can sign up for your free consultation right now at agoristtaxadvice.com slash blackbird. Once again, you get a free consultation at agoristtaxadvice.com slash blackbird. 
And with that, let's get into the show. So uh, I asked my Twitter followers for questions because I am not the best at just kind of rambling for an hour. I got a few really good ones. And so here they are. First, Mike Corbell, who is probably a newer follower, but he's the host of the Great Invictus Mind podcast, which you should be listening to. He said, what's your show called? Which is just a great first question. Uh, the name of the show is Blackbird. Um, the reason that I called the show Blackbird, I think those of you who've been listening you know, for eight months or so probably already know, and some of you might have surmised that it is named after the Beatles song Blackbird. And I wanted to guide my audience and myself to a better understanding of the world and a more successful life in it. And so you'll hear me interview entrepreneurs, philosophers, podcasters, and also some of my buddies. You know, I mean, a lot of times it's just going to be me talking to other podcasters, which is great too. Um, I think that building a community of like-minded people, people who you get along with, people who can complement your strengths and fill in the gaps for some of your weaknesses is one of the best ways to find success. So like, for instance, me and LB Muniz, get along really well. I think that he's great and smart and a very, very good talker and very good communicator and a very good writer, et cetera. And so I love to have him on the show just to kind of pick his brain. And I love to go on his show because he is also able to draw out of me some of the wisdom that I have that I have trouble expressing at the spur of the moment. So he's one of my closest friends in this kind of podcasting space. Additionally, you know, I've had uh, here recently, Alex, the strategist, he's like a business strategy guru. I've also had historians like Tom Woods, um, but we didn't just talk about history or his podcast or anything. I got really personal with him. You will hear, I don't remember if Mark Clare's interview will have been published by the time you hear this, but uh, Mark Clare, for instance, from Lions of Liberty, not a scholar by any means, but he's a great podcaster. He's got a lot of experience in this space and a lot of insight. And I didn't mean to, that wasn't a jab at his you know, intelligence or scholarship, but you know, I mean, he doesn't have a PhD like Tom Woods. And also he's not a business guru like Alex, the strategist. You'll hear me talk about psychedelics and things like that because it's something that I'm curious about. And basically, anything that I'm curious about is what, is what I'm going to talk about here. And it seems to be striking a chord with a lot of people, which I love. So what does that have to do with Blackbird? Well, Blackbird, the song, has two like main lines. The first line is, Blackbird singing in the dead of night, take these broken wings and learn to fly. So we're learning to fly on here. Learning to fly meaning like have a successful life, start a business, become independent of the sort of mechanisms that are controlling us. That was the whole reason I started the podcast in the beginning as Urban Agorist which was my original title. And I believe you can get the back issues of Urban Agorist on this same feed. I wanted to completely separate myself from the state, completely separate myself from employment, maybe even by a farm, that kind of thing, because 2020 was kind of a fucked up year. And I have sort of abandoned agorism just because I don't feel like I've got the resources or the, I guess talent's probably not the right word, but I, I can't see myself starting a farm. Let's just put it that way. And uh, you might be able to hear my dog snorting in the background. He's um, kind of rolling around on the ground, which is interesting. So if you hear taps or snorts or anything like that, just know that there's an adorable beagle lying on the floor next to me being his adorable self. So agorism. Yeah, I kind of abandoned agorism first because I don't think that my personality is suited to agorism. But then also, you know, I don't, want to completely write off politics. And to me, agorism might be a little Pollyanna-ish as far as the like potential for gray market activity to completely shut down the state and completely make it irrelevant. I don't think that it's a sufficient mechanism for reaching 
freedom in, in our lives. That said, I do think that it's necessary. I think that trying to subvert the state as much as we can is definitely a worthwhile goal. So I don't want to abandon agorism completely either. And so you'll hear me interview a lot of people who are agorists or sort of agorist adjacent. I think if I had to look at the different sort of branches of the liberty movement right now. And again, I say this all the time. I don't want to make this a libertarian podcast, but you know, I'm libertarian and most of my guests are as well. You know, agorism is one leg on that stool and it's kind of like a five leg stool. So maybe that's not the right, (laughs) that's not the right metaphor, but you've also got the Mises caucus. And I, I see the LP and the Mises caucus as a great way to welcome people into the movement because like it or not, when people Google, like what is libertarianism, they're going to find the libertarian party. That's going to be the first thing they see. And if the Libertarian Party sucks, then people are going to think that libertarianism sucks. I don't have any delusions that the LP is going to be like the force that brings about a free world, if that's even possible. I think if I'm being realistic, probably Jason Stapleton and Matt Erickson with uh, creating nomadic wealth and creating your own sort of individual liberty, like literally individual individualized liberty, has the most potential to get us there. But the LP and the Mises caucus specifically inside the LP is very important, not only for winning local elections and things like that, which, I, you know, I, that's kind of a take it or leave it thing. Most local elections are nonpartisan, at least in my experience. I've grown up in big cities where you don't have an R or a D or an L or whatever next to the person's name on the ballot. So to me, like the partisanship doesn't really matter so much as just having like an organization that is there to say, this is what libertarianism is and this is what liberty looks like. And I think the Mises Caucus is the best way to do that. Not to mention, you know, Dave Smith and to a lesser degree, Tom Woods and Scott Horton are affiliated with the Mises Caucus. And so they're they're doing a tremendous job of like spreading that message. You know, Dave Smith has been on the Tim Pool show here recently with Michael Heiss and the who's the chair of the Mises Caucus. So, you know, I don't want to diminish the role that the Mises Caucus and the LP have. So I'm active in the Mises Caucus. I'm active in my state LP, and uh, I plan to be a delegate to the national LP convention next year. But that said, I see it more as a movement builder and a networking opportunity than like an actual winning office political force. Which brings it to the GOP paleo strategy, which is kind of led by Tho Bishop, or he's kind of their figurehead, I guess. And then also Praxianism, which is sort of the framework laid out by Andrew from Popular Liberty, who was recently on the show, I think about a month ago, and we'll be back in the next month or so to talk about some new developments that he's come up with. I'm critical of Praxianism because it just seems like another framework to me, and frameworks don't persuade. Really, only libertarians and communists get excited about stuff like that. So, I mean, if he can find enough people to run for office, then more power to him. The big benefit of Andrew's thing is, in addition to being very creative, and if it can gain legs, you know, very effective, is that he does use the GOP title, along with Tho, who is the chair of his county GOP. I don't think that the Democratic Party has a lot of potential to be a force for freedom or liberty at this point. I think that they're, uh, I don't remember who said it, it might have been Day Smith. But they're, they're the most corrupt organization on earth right now, maybe, or at least in America. So I don't, I don't have a lot of hope for the Democrats, even if there are a few Democrats who are still dedicated to civil liberties and anti-war and that sort of thing. Some of my political heroes, and I, I hate using that phrase, political hero, but, you know, I mean, people like Dennis Kucinich, 
they were very formative to me in coming around to where I've kind of landed in this sort of anarcho-capitalist, free market agorist, whatever space that I'm occupying now in my brain. So I do have to hand it to some Democrats. I just don't think that they are going to be a force for good for the foreseeable future. So if you are going to align with a political party and you don't want to be aligned with the LP, then the GOP is kind of where it's at. But like I said, you know, Jason Stapleton's wealth, power, and influence is, to me, the most promising. I'm going to be having Jason on the show to talk about it in the next couple of weeks. I recently put my money where my mouth was and dropped a couple of thousand dollars on his mentorship program because I really do think that before we can become politically active and also politically effective, we do have to have some semblance of influence in our communities in order to even be taken seriously. And even if you're like me and you don't plan on running for office and you don't want to have necessarily political influence, having that personal wealth is a better thing than having personal poverty and being, you know, racked with debt and that sort of thing. So to that end, I am, you know, building businesses. I'm monetizing this podcast. Obviously, you know, if you do want to sign up for <laughs> a premium subscription. It's only $7 a month. So please, by all means, do that. But also, I'm building a consulting business. I've already got Thaddeus Russell as a client. I'm looking forward to expanding that over the course of the next few months with Jason's help and with the help of Miguel Duque, who is my productivity coach. Amagi.life is his URL if you want to check him out. Building wealth, power, and influence in my own life, and especially over my own life, comes before any sort of political activity, as far as I'm concerned. So uh, where was it? So the question, the question was, what is your show called? Thanks for the question, Mike. The show is called Blackbird. Next up, what are some of your favorite books? So I have a few favorite books. I'm going to answer them like from the Liberty space. So For a New Liberty, that was the book that made me an ANCAP. The story behind that is pretty interesting. So I was like a Ron Paul kid, not kid, I guess. I was in my 20s, but I was a Ron Paul guy in 2008. I came to discover Ron Paul through a Catholic blog, of all things. It was a Catholic blogger by the name of Mark Shea. Mark was like an anti-libertarian blogger. But he liked Tom Woods because Tom wrote a book called How the Catholic Church Built Western Civilization. And he liked Ron Paul because Ron Paul was anti-war or anti-Iraq war anyway. At the time, that was a big deal. And anti-abortion. And those were Mark Shea's two big things. He was like, look, I'm not going to vote for a politician who supports objective evil. And those two things were the two big issues of the day. After Obama became president, Mark Shea came out in favor of like universal health care or, you know, government funded universal health care, health care as a right, that kind of thing. So obviously he's not, he's no libertarian, but given the big issues in 2008 and the years running up to that, he was a big Ron Paul guy. So I kind of abandoned the Catholicism, at least for a while, but I stuck around for the libertarianism. I was a big Ron Paul fan, and then uh, I was a big Tom Woods fan. And I was listening to Tom Woods and Lou Rockwell talk one time. It was an interview, and Lou Rockwell said, he uttered the phrase, I'm no fan of the Constitution. And that completely blew my mind. I had no idea. Like I thought libertarianism and being a fan of the constitution were the same thing because Ron Paul talked about the constitution so much. That was like all he talked about. Come to find out Ron Paul was talking about it from the, you know, these are the limits that the government has placed on itself. This isn't the ideal government. So from there, I followed Lou Rockwell's I think I probably went just to the Mises Institute's website. I, I believe I had read some of Lou Rockwell's, like some articles at lourockwell.com, but it didn't really stand out. 
So I went to the Mises Institute website and wanted to devour as much information as I could. I came across the free audiobook of For a New Liberty, which was Rothbard's kind of treatise on libertarianism. And it blew my mind. Like it's a chapter by chapter framework for how a free society would work, like an anarchist society, a society with no state. I look at it now and it's probably because, you know, it's been like a decade or more since I read it for the first time. And it seems a little bit basic and it seems a little bit unrealistic at this point, but it definitely laid the foundation. More recently, I read Democracy, the God that Failed by Hans-Hermann Hoppe. And that book made Hoppe like my favorite libertarian theorist. I love Hoppe. I'm not a huge fan of like self-proclaimed Hoppians. Usually they, they tend to get on my nerves. And I guess that's also kind of a problem that I have with agorists. And I know I have a lot of agorist audience members, including personal friends, and I'm not talking about you. But a lot of agorists are just weird and paranoid and just not my kind of person. So like I haven't found much community inside of agorism. I also haven't found much community inside of Hoppianism. You know, no knock on the trads and stuff like that, but it's just not my scene. You know, I'm I'm not a family man. I don't have any plans on being a family man. Even if I were straight, I would probably not want to have kids. I'm too selfish for that. I like to travel. I have my dog who I mentioned earlier, and I've got my same-sex partner. We live in the middle of the city and probably will live in the city or the suburbs for the rest of our lives. But that said, Hoppe's image of a free society with its covenant communities and sort of insular city-based or municipality-based governance is probably the most realistic, decentralized picture of freedom that I can think of. And it also opened my mind to monarchism and, and sort of more, I hate to say, non-traditional because monarchism is like the most traditional form of government. But, you know, I mean, today, if you are opposed to democracy, you're essentially anathema from a societal standpoint. So anyway, Democracy, the God that Failed led me to being open to Curtis Yarvin, who I'm reading his Gray Mirror blog, which I guess counts as a book from the question, what are some of my favorite books? Gray Mirror is sort of a book in progress that if you join Curtis Yarvin's Substack at the paid level, you can kind of read chapter by chapter and he's releasing it. And it's, it's, it's good. It's a great book. So I guess, I mean, it's not a book that I've read in its entirety because it's not been written in its entirety, but I probably count that among my, my favorite books as well. It's been very influential on me anyway. Yarvin is writing sort of a Machiavellian instruction manual for the next regime. Whatever replaces this current I guess you could call it New Deal regime. I, the, the last sort of monarch president, as far as Yarvin is concerned, was FDR. And he's saying that we need a new FDR as president to kind of be the monarch that America needs in order to reform it. He uses Trump as shorthand. Obviously, it's not going to be Trump, but it could be someone like Trump. My hope is that it'll be someone who's a little bit more dedicated to human freedom than FDR was and Lincoln preceding FDR. But in any case, it's an interesting book and it's an interesting sort of look at the way that Curtis Yarvin thinks. So I highly recommend it. Otherwise, you can listen to his interviews with, you know, like Pete Quinones. He was recently on the Michael Malice You're Welcome show. So yeah, those are some of my, my big liberty and political philosophy books. For New Liberty, Democracy, The God That Failed, and Gray Mirror, which is in progress. As for like life books, you can't go wrong with 12 Rules for Life, which was by Jordan Peterson. He wrote that prior to his illness. And, you know, I've been a little bit disappointed with Jordan Peterson this past year. 
granted, he was sick for like all of 2020 and even I think before 2020. So he missed speaking out against lockdowns and things like that. And his daughter, Michaela Peterson, assured us that he was, you know, opposed to the lockdowns and that sort of thing. But, you know, it would have been nice to have him around. The problem, though, is that he has not picked the baton back up since coming back into the four. He's having these kind of milk toast, angels dancing on the head of a pin interviews recently in the last few months since his re-emergence into the limelight. And he's just not the same kind of fiery, I'll say what I think, damn the critics type anymore. I'm hoping that he comes back around to that. I know that he's probably still experiencing some of the mental like brain fog, intellectual fog, I guess, that comes along with the illness that he was experiencing. But anyway, 12 Rules for Life was a huge influence. My favorite rules are two, four, and nine. Number two is treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping. And that reminds me that, you know, I <laughs> I can't be hard on myself, but also I can't be too easy on myself because I, I need to have my best interests at heart. And I'm the kind of person who will bend over backwards for another person, but I need to remember to also bend over backwards for myself in pushing myself to success, but in also giving myself a break if I screw up. So that was number two. Number three is make friends with people who want the best for you. And I feel like those kind of go together. So I didn't list number three as one of my like top three favorite rules of the 12 rules for life. But make friends with people who want the best for you is also part of treating myself like someone I'm responsible for helping. You know, I don't have a huge circle of friends, although online I do. And I feel like the guys and gals that I talk with online a lot, they do fit that mold. They are people who want the best for me. And then, you know, my in real life friends too, you know, I've got a good little circle of friends. Some of them I've gotten like as overlap from being partnered. I'm friends with a lot of my partner's friends. And then I have, you know, work friends and social friends who I don't know if I know them well enough, to be honest, to say that they want the best for me. That can be a little bit problematic, I guess. I would say that I have like three very close friends who know a whole lot about me and definitely want the best for me. So I think I'm taking care of myself in that way. And it might just be that I'm a little more reticent to trust people. And that I think is part of my personality, I guess, maybe. Rule number four, compare yourself to who you were yesterday, not to who someone else is today. That's the next one that is big for me. And it goes along with treat yourself like someone you're responsible for helping. If I were in a position to help someone, obviously I wouldn't be comparing them to their perceived competition. I would be comparing them to the less improved person that they were prior to where they are now. And so I consider it a cause for celebration whenever I make an improvement in my life. And it's not always the easiest thing for me. I'm a bit of a perfectionist, but improvement is improvement. And I like that. And then finally, skipping ahead to number nine, assume that the person you are listening to might know something that you don't. That's very important to me. And it's what I think makes me a fairly good interviewer, if I may toot my horn. The idea that, you know, I might be more intelligent than a person, even like my four-year-old niece, for instance, she was just here in town. Um, that's actually why I'm getting this podcast out a little bit late. Uh, my family just left. And, you know, I mean, you can learn something from anybody, even your four-year-old niece. So assuming the person I'm listening to might know something that I don't, that can be in the sense that, you know, she's four. So what can she possibly teach me? Possibly a lot. It also is important in listening to our political opponents. I know that libertarians for the longest time would go to bat for 
huge corporations like banks and Google and you know the, the big tech people and insurance companies and so on and so forth. It wasn't until recently that we really started understanding, like we, we've always said it, Rothbard even said it, that we don't live in a free market. Like the markets are distorted. It wasn't until recently though that we really took to heart what that means. And I think that part of the reason that we've realized that that these aren't like private companies, bro, came from listening to our socialist and specifically like our anarcho-socialist counterparts. You know, the Occupy movement was hugely influential on the latter-day libertarian movement. And I think that it's easy to overlook that. So assume that the person you are listening to might know something that you don't is a very important rule as far as I'm concerned. Next up, there's two like religious books, I guess. One's A Father Who Keeps His Promises. It's by Scott Hahn. Scott Hahn is a biblical theologian. He was a Presbyterian pastor who converted to Catholicism and founded the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. He's also a professor at Franciscan University of Steubenville. And the reason that I like A Father Who Keeps His Promises is because it lays out the scriptures in, uh, and by the scriptures, obviously, I mean the Christian Bible, in a very systematic and sort of narrative fashion. It helped me understand what Christians mean when they say that God loves us and that God is a father. You'll have to read the book. Scott Hahn's like whole sort of schema is called Salvation History. And it's basically a series of covenants between God and his chosen people at the time. It starts out with like just a couple, Adam and Eve, and then it goes to a family with Noah. And then it goes to like an entire tribe with Abraham. And then it becomes like a nation with Moses and then sort of like an empire with David and then the entire world through Christ. And so that progression of covenants, covenant meaning oath in, I believe, Latin is sort of the story of God's relationship with man. And so being that I'm kind of a systematic thinker, that systematization of the Bible was a great way for me to understand sort of where Christianity was coming from, even if I don't necessarily subscribe to it at this point. And then the second one is The Ragamuffin Gospel by Brennan Manning. And that is about sort of God's unconditional love for people. Yes, even like the ragamuffin, even the lowly, the sinner, the person who doesn't live up to the expectations that society or the church or themselves or whoever have set up for them. So that's that. Those are the books. For New Liberty, Democracy, the God that Failed, 12 Rules for Life, A Father Who Keeps His Promises, and The Ragamuffin Gospel. Next up, why do you hate pills? Okay, so I don't hate pills. I like the red pill and the blue pill. I like them because they're in the matrix. That is what this whole thing is about. The red pill means that you're going to see the world for what it is, even if it's very ugly, even if you know it's going to get you in trouble. And by trouble, I mean like physical danger, potentially. Just like in the Matrix, you know, they left the comfortable blue-pilled world and they were in the tunnels, basically, as Monica Perez likes to say, on their little on their little submarine-looking ship. But those are the people who saved the world. So that's great. And then blue-pilled obviously refers to not seeing the world for what it is. It's seeing the world for what the sort of manufacturers of the world would like for you to see. There are other pills, black pill, white pill. So white pill is like the understanding that we don't have to lose. Black pill is the understanding that we do have to lose. I think that those are both temporary and oscillating. And also, they're not really in the present, like the red and blue pill framework is. I'm using framework, that's one of the words that I just kind of overuse. So bear with me. 
black pill is very pessimistic. White pill is like cautiously optimistic, I guess. I think that we're going to have lots of victories and lots of losses. And it's just a matter of coping with all of them, celebrating the wins, overcoming the losses and learning from them. I don't think that you need to have a black or a white pill. And then there's a bunch of just dumb pills. There's like purple pill that's somewhere between red and blue. Okay, fine. I think probably everyone's a little bit between red and blue. I mean, like, you know, look at Neo in The Matrix. He didn't quite believe that he he was going to be able to jump between buildings. And lo and behold, he fell. He fell. Even after taking the red pill, he fell between the buildings when he was trying to jump from one rooftop to the other. And that's, I guess, a purple pill. But it's dumb because he had taken the red pill and eventually he saw it. And was able to, you know, not just jump from building to building, but literally fly. Uh, what else? There's like orange pill. Orange pill means Bitcoin's going to save the world. Okay. I mean, yes, definitely. I, I recommend buying Bitcoin, but it's uh, not a pill. Um, there's a Christ pill, which is Christianity. Yeah. You know, if that's your thing, do it. Matt Erickson, who I love, has King pill, which I think is kind of like the Christ pill, but also it has something to do with private property. That's fine, but it's also just capitalizing on the on the word pill. So, you know, other than the red and blue pill, which are actual things in like real fiction, the rest of them are just made up by schlubs online. And <laughs> I just think it's dumb. Oh, and then, yeah, Curtis Yarvin has the clear pill, which I think he is maybe the one who like created the whole red pill, blue pill thing, comparing it to the Matrix. So I guess he has poetic license in that. But basically, the clear pill is you have no influence over politics. So just sit and wait. Don't vote. Don't be an activist. Don't even like opine online. Just wait. And maybe the next regime will be good for you. So that's the clear pill. And I think it's good advice. Maybe, maybe good advice, but it's not a pill. Next up, what is the most important thing in my mind right now? And that is scapegoating. I've been thinking a lot since my chat with David Gornoski and since reading a little bit more of Rene Girard. So humans have this tendency, we need to sacrifice. Christians, like the pure Christian doctrine, believes that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was sufficient, and so we no longer need to sacrifice. But I think it's part of the human condition that we continue doing it anyway. And to me, that's a denial of Christ's sacrifice if you're Christian, and it's a bad way to build a society, even if you're not. So, for instance, like the Salem witch trials were kind of a classic scapegoat example, and just basically any sort of witch hunt, whether it's the Salem witch trials, whether it's, you know, finding people who aren't wearing masks and blaming a pandemic on them, or now I guess uh, the people who aren't vaccinated, and uh, in, in libertarian circles, and I guess more like trad circles, there's like pedophiles and wood chippers. All of this stuff is just a substitution for sacrifice and like finding redemption. Uh, on the left, it's racism, obviously. It's finding redemption for your sort of cult or your tribe or whatever at the expense of the scapegoat. And it's super dangerous to me. You know, I mean, that's with Hitler, it was with Jews and and other societal outcasts and minorities. With the communists, it was the kulaks and the bourgeoisie. Those things are all scapegoats. They're basically finding a person or a class of people to turn into the bad guys so that the good guys can find redemption in whatever their faith-based framework. There's that word again whatever that faith-based framework is, whether it's a global pandemic, political movement, or 
trying to make society safer, better, more pure, whatever, from your point of view. So that's that. Next, my friend Bobby Joe at B. Dorino on Twitter asks, when are you going to stop ignoring the Twin Cities Freedom Cells group on Telegram? All right, touche. I'm not necessarily ignoring it. Like I, I pop in from time to time, but I just don't, I, I don't have the time. And, you know, like I said about agorism earlier, I just don't think it's for me. I do appreciate the conversation that goes on in there. And I highly recommend anybody who is looking for their tribe, especially in the local area. I have made lots of like in real life acquaintances. Like I said earlier, I don't have a huge circle of friends, but uh, I have lots of people close to me, like geographically, who I know I can lean on if shit does hit the fan. Or, you know, if I just want to buy a chicken or whatever, (laughs) I know where to go. I had some questions about my garden that I just, you know, DM'd a couple of people from the Freedom Cells. So I highly recommend that you get involved with Freedom Cells, go to the meetups, get involved in the chat, join their groups on Telegram or wherever they're at in your local area. And I believe that's just at freedomcells.org. It might be freedomcells.com. I'll put a link in the description if you can't find it, you know, using your search engine of choice. Uh, okay, next, Dan D. Douglas, who uh, I recently became acquainted with on Twitter. So the reason I'm doing a solo episode is because an interview fell through. Dan asked, why haven't you developed a panel of unknowns to bring on in emergencies like this? And I have. They're not necessarily unknowns, but like I said earlier, you know, if I needed an interview, I could go to Jose or I could go to LB or I could go to Jacob Winograd. I have quite a few friends who in a pinch would be able to do an interview in a day or two. But I wanted to, like I said, kind of flex my muscle on the solo episode. I think I'm doing okay. I'm talking kind of fast. So I need to work on that. And the questions are kind of a crutch. So <laughs> I want to I wanna try to be able to do this, you know, talk for, I'm, I've been going on for about 40 minutes now without the need for questions in the form of polling my Twitter audience. Dan also asked, do you think that there is some truth to the claim that political actions are inherently harmful to liberty. Uh, I mentioned that just a minute ago when I was talking about the pills. I don't think that political actions are inherently harmful to liberty, but I do think that they might be a waste of time. And so that's why I've kind of abandoned agorism. I think that there is need for holding politicians' feet to the fire and maybe even running candidates against them, but I don't think that it's necessary or sufficient or maybe I don't think that it's sufficient. It might be necessary. Uh, and then two gay questions. Well, one of them's not gay. One of them's like trans. Okay, Meredith at Fletch Hercox says, RuPaul's Drag Race, your thoughts. I've never watched the show. I've, I, I, you know, a bunch of my friends, especially my partner is just, he's the best. We have very similar tastes in media and where we don't overlap in media, like we'll be able to stomach what we're watching together and make fun of each other for it. So RPDR is not a show that we've ever watched, either one of us, and we're not even really in circles where it's a big deal. I do have friends who used to watch it. I don't know if they still do. RuPaul kind of got in trouble with the woke set, which I don't necessarily like the term woke, but that's it is what it is. He said some allegedly transphobic stuff. I don't really know off the top of my head what it was. I do like that RuPaul, even, I mean, ever since I was a kid, has made sort of gender bending something that is fun and funny and not just terrifying to the normal set. I'm kind of in a minority, especially especially having mentioned that Hoppe was my favorite libertarian theorist earlier. I would not consider myself a traditionalist when it comes to gender and gender expression and gender identity. I have lots of non-binary friends, which is kind of the hardest thing for a lot of people to come to grips with. 
I think even like Rick Santorum, who is like known as sort of the arch conservative family values guy, was in favor of trans rights because, you know, he saw it as people need to express themselves. And he didn't see it as a moral issue, unlike homosexuality, which was a moral issue because people were having same-sex relationships. Transgenderism is sort of a personal identity. So for me, being that I, I have always kind of been a grammatical prescriptivist, I didn't like the idea of using they and them as like a singular pronoun, which I know is just the weirdest objection to a non-binary gender identity that a lot of people can think of because for a lot of people, it's complete degeneracy. But for for me, it was the pronouns thing that was the biggest hangup. And once I got around the fact that actually language is constantly in a state of flux, there's no such thing as like proper grammar and I will die on that hill. I I, I came to grips with non-binary, which is good because I have lots of non-binary friends now. I think that gender identity, not this, this is something completely separate from sex. Like if you have... XY chromosomes and a penis, then you are biologically male. And if you have two X chromosomes and a vagina, then you're biologically female. And if you're one of the, like, I don't know what the population is, but the tiny, tiny number of people who have kind of like confused genitals or chromosomes, then you are sort of an anomaly and that's a medical issue. But gender identity is purely psychological. It has nothing to do with genitals and chromosomes. And I think that that is something that exists kind of on a spectrum or maybe even a plane similar to sexual orientation. And given that there are some people who are attracted against all biological explanation, attracted to people of the same sex, some people who are attracted to people of both or all sexes or genders that also can manifest itself in gender identity. And so for me, you know, non-binary gender identity is no weirder than bisexual or pansexual orientation. So that's that on RuPaul's Drag Race and my thoughts on gender identity. The next one is from Greg. Can two guys have sex and not be gay? Yes, they can. Gayness is a sexual orientation. It's not necessarily a behavior. So just like a homosexual, someone who's completely only attracted to members of the same sex can have sex with a woman. I know plenty of older gay guys who got married as young, you know, in their 20s or whatever, married to women, had families, and were gay the entire time. There are also guys who, you know, might experiment or are just curious or maybe they just like to get their dick sucked. You know, whatever it is, the crux of sexual orientation is where you're oriented, not what makes you ejaculate. Um, So yes, a guy can have sex with a guy and not be gay. And I think that's the end of the questions. And I don't really have any thoughts. I have to, like I said earlier, my family was in town and they're on a plane now. So I have to actually get to work. So that's what I'm going to do. And I really appreciate you tuning in. Make sure once again to head over to blackbirdpodcast.com, sign up to win a free lifetime master membership to Tom Woods' Liberty Classroom. When you do that, you're also entering to win a lifetime premium membership to Blackbird. I'm going to draw for two of those. And just for signing up, you're going to get 30 days of premium membership to Blackbird for free. So do that, blackbirdpodcast.com. 
click the link in the top post. It's going to take you to a separate form where you enter your, I believe, name and email address. And I will draw the winners on September 20th, 2021. If you're listening to this after that date, then sorry, you're too late. But still go to blackbirdpodcast.com, sign up with your email address, or drop me a couple bucks a month to sign up for the premium feed. And also agoristaxservice.com. All these links are going to be in the description. Thanks again for tuning in, and I will see you on the next episode of Blackbird. Until then, live free. (laughs) 